So we've been walking through the accounts of Jesus' last days here in the Gospel of Mark, and we've seen him welcomed into Jerusalem. People yelling, Hosanna, but we've also seen people yell, crucify him. We've seen him put on trial, condemned to death, even though he was innocent. We've seen him whipped and beaten. We've seen him nailed on a cross, and we've seen him or heard him speak his last words as we talked about last week. And so what's next? Well, we're looking today at his burial. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried. And that's what we're looking at today. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, for us, burial may not be that big of a deal, but certainly in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this plan, it needs to be stated well that he was buried for several different reasons, and we're looking at that today. But first of all, what did this burial by the Romans do for us today to understand? Well, first of all, it proves his death. You know, some people say Jesus didn't really die on the cross, and instead of a resurrection, you have a resuscitation. But the fact of the matter is, they were kind of good at this thing called crucifixion, and there's no way that the Romans were going to let someone off of the cross who was under a death sentence unless they had died. And we're going to see other proofs of that as well. And so it was important that Jesus die. Why was it important? Well, the wages of sin is death. God is an absolutely just judge. He's actually the perfect accountant as well. Here's this payment that is due. And the wages of that payment is the death of something. Now, remember, the wages of sin is death. And so in the garden, when man sinned, man didn't die right away physically. They died spiritually. There was a separation between them and God. He threw them out of the garden. He, he blocked the access to the tree of life in case they might eat of it and live forever in their sin. And that's no good, is it? And, and so he separated himself spiritually. They died spiritually. There's a separation that took place. And we inherited this deadness of separation from God. But they didn't die physically. Because God created man to work with man, to fellowship with man, to enjoy man, and to have man enjoy him. And he, he created us special in this way, in his image, so we can have this. But as the perfect accountant and as the absolutely just judge, as soon as someone sins, they should die. But what did God do? He created a system to be able to overlook sin so that he could work with man before that physical death took place. And what was that? It was the death of an animal in place of the death of the human, right? And that's why you see the sacrificial system throughout the scriptures. And, and so he, he created this. Now, what was going to eventually happen, and this was God's plan, was that that sacrifice represents something yet future because the death of an animal doesn't equate to the death of a human. The animal doesn't have the same will, the same willful sin. It's an innocent animal dying for our willful sin. And so what ends up happening is God wanted all of these sacrifices for us to understand. Ultimately, he's going to be, bring the perfect sacrifice. He's going to bring a man that didn't need to die for his own sins so that he could die in place of our sins. And that was Jesus Christ. 
And so it was important that he die because the wages of sin is death, and he paid that wage. If you're an accountant, it makes sense. If you're a lawyer, it makes sense. If you're a little kid, it makes sense. You know what? You stole the cookie, and your brothers are going to get smacked for it. Praise God. I get it, you know. We can get it. The wages of sin is death. And so his death and burial is a primary part of the resurrection. Why? Because he had to be dead in order to resurrect. It wasn't a resuscitation. If he didn't die, then he didn't raise from the dead. And even him raising from the dead, we'll talk about this next time, but raising from the dead proved that God accepted the sacrifice, that it was an acceptable sacrifice. And it proved that there is life after death, and he can raise you from the dead. And he is a forerunner. He is an example of a human that has died and raised in a new body. He is the forerunner for all of us. Now, verse 40 goes on. It says, there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joses and uh, Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now Luke gives us some clues as to whom some of these other women might be. In Luke chapter 8, it says, Now it came to pass afterwards that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. They provided for him from their substance. They were giving to support Jesus, but they were also serving or ministering unto him. A minister is a servant. In other countries, they call this person the, the, the minister of whatever, that means they're the servant. They're the public servant of whatever, right? And so they ministered unto Jesus. And, you know, you need to understand that the women's retreat, we do it every other year, unless COVID hit like it did last year. But it's a terrifying, stuff. It's a terrifying time for us men, <laughs> right? Because women are so important in the church and in the ministry of the church, in fact, it's my view that women, you know, in the beginning, God created man, male and female. He created man in his image, right? And so women and, and men, females and males, are just as important to God because we reflect the image of God as a whole. And, and so if women try to be men, who's going to the, the, bring the, the, the femininity to the situation? And if men act like women, who's going to bring the masculinity to the situation? A marriage isn't 50-50, right? A marriage is 100-100. 100% of the woman and 100% of the man makes a full marriage, right? And the same is true in the church. And so I want you to, to imagine with me, even if you've been watching the Chosen series, it, it is, doesn't even show it well enough in the sense that, you know, you got the 12 disciples, Right, and God chose them specifically. And 12 is a number of government and scriptures. You have the 12 tribes. You have the 12 disciples, you know. And you got 24 elders in the picture in Revelation and all this, and 12 and 12 make 24. And so you have this idea of leadership there. But could you imagine how bad off these guys would have been unless they had an entourage 
also with a lot of women taking care of them, <laughs> you know, to make sure that they weren't just an absolute mess, smelly, and just a horrible when they're trying to go minister in, in, into these cities. It's like, what do you guys, they'd just be arrested everywhere they went, right? And so understand that, that when Jesus traveled, he had the 12, and sometimes he was alone with the 12, but most of the time there was a, a support group with them that were involved with a lot of women were included in that. And they were serving Jesus, and they were bringing their part to the equation. In fact, there was evidence that there was about 70 that actually traveled fairly close to Jesus on and off. And at times, even 70 would be there. And at times, there were thousands, right? But I think his core group included, you know, there's probably, you know, 15 to 30 people at any given time that were with Jesus as he traveled. And many of these were women, and so understand, you know, sometimes churches like, well, the, you know, the Bible says we got to subject women. You know what? No way. Men, you do your job well enough so women can be just free to do their job. And if you don't do your job, you know who's going to do your job for you, men? The women. Drives me crazy. When I don't take out the trash, which is my job. So my wife goes, honey, will you take out the trash? And I go, yeah, I'll get to it, but I'm watching something on TV or YouTube or, you know, I'm doing something else. And if I don't do it within five minutes, she takes out the trash to my shame. What do you, but it's the nature of women, right? They're going to get it done. And if, if we men don't do it, it's, you know, so sometimes churches are out of order. We can blame the women for being overbearing or we can blame the men for not doing the work that they're supposed to be doing, right? And, and, and. God made you women incredible because you have this incredible sense of duty as where we men often have to choose to do something. You by nature want to get it done, right? But at the same time, God did create us very differently for very specific purposes and done right. It's a beautiful thing. And when men take their responsibility and roles seriously and women take their responsibilities and roles seriously, you have a beautiful thing happening. And I can send you some books if you're confused on this, but it is so good. And, and God created man and woman together. He created them to reflect his image. And what is the world trying to do right now? Erase that. Listen, I learn from my wife and my adult daughters things about God because they experience God differently than I do, even as they learn from me. I'm not afraid to learn from a woman. In fact, I should, because she's not my help slave. She's my help mate, as well as I'm her helping her as well. When I do weddings, the, in, in the vows, it's, it's, um, it's uh, servant leader and servant helper is what I call the man and the woman, because you're serving one another. Submit yourselves one to another. Wives by respecting your husbands, husbands by loving your wives. You're submitting to one another. We're serving together. And so there's this wholeness. We are not a woke church, but we're not a church that's also so backwards that we can't learn from the incredible things that women bring and not appreciate the beauty and the things that women are supposed to be doing, but way better at it than we as men are because they reflect a different or you reflect a different side of God than we do. And it is an incredibly beautiful thing when it works, you know? And so some churches are all about, well, that woman, no, she, she can't be up on stage. You got to wear a head dolly or whatever, you know? But if your church, if your men are solid and strong, 
and doing their job, women don't feel like they have to do your job for you or rule over you either, right? And then they are free to do everything that they are called to do fully. But we don't have a, a regular, like if a woman teaches a devotion, I'm fine with that. But not over men on a regular basis, over a long period of time, week in and week out, right? Because what, what comes with that is spiritual authority, okay? Before the fall, God created man and woman, and he gave man that headship or that leadership in the family, right? The fall happened, but that was before the fall. That was pre-sin design, okay, from God. And so it, it isn't a matter of, of just trying to shut women down in the church. It's a matter of respecting God's original institution of marriage and the order of it. But the church is supposed to be just as influenced by women, 50%, as it is by men, 50%. Right? And we are supposed to embrace what we're supposed to be doing. And, and so the church isn't going to go backwards and put someone in a spiritual authority as an elder or a pastor that might disrupt their marriage relationship at home because that is the first relationship or institution that God created and it is the foundation of every society that's ever been formed and societies fall apart when the marriage relationship falls apart. And we're seeing it, aren't we? The world is disrespecting marriage, trying to define the, uh, redefine the definition of marriage and destroying the family and, and trying to you know, steal the children from the parents right? And it's just, it's just crazy what's happening, but all of it is designed by Satan. I think people are well-intended. I want to believe that people are well-intended. I want to believe that they think they're doing the right thing, but I also believe that Satan can put thoughts in people's